All right. Uh, we're going to start in Leviticus. The, the plan is to do another 12 weeks in Leviticus like we did 12 weeks in James. Although, who knows? I remember uh, starting a 12-week study in Isaiah that took us 66 weeks. So not quite that many. Close. <laughs> a year or so. But uh, we'll start in Leviticus this morning, and we're just doing an, an overview. So you can uh, go ahead and turn to Leviticus in your Bibles. <clears throat> I want you to be thinking ahead a little bit about what's your experience and thinking about Leviticus. Um, specifically, what's the, how would you answer the question, what is Leviticus for? What is Leviticus for? And I'll, I'll ask that. Uh, and and think about your answers in, in a few minutes. Um, but uh, Leviticus is, is uh, in the middle of what we call the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch's the first five books of the Old Testament. They're the books of Moses, because Moses wrote them, except for the very end of Deuteronomy, which records how Moses died. We assume he didn't write that part. But uh, <laughs> just a little section there at the end of Deuteronomy that that was added to explain his, his death. But the rest of it is all written uh, by Moses. Uh, we don't have all the details about how Moses knew what to write because he started writing with Genesis, you know, all the way back to the creation of the world. But uh, whatever combination of, of information that had been passed down combined with God's movement of Moses as an author and what God chose to reveal to him, he wrote these first five books. Um, and Leviticus is right, right in the middle of it. It's the middle of the, of the five. It's the third one. Um, most of the content of the book of Leviticus is God speaking. Uh, the vast majority of it is just God speaking. You could put it all in quotation marks, a, a lot of it with a, a few chunks of narrative uh, sprinkled in there. Uh, probably the most significant chunk of narrative or story in the book of Leviticus is uh, a section close to the middle where the priests are consecrated to the Lord as a part of instituting all the tabernacle sacrifice. So they set apart the priests to, to serve there. Um, and then Right in that same section, after they're consecrated, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offer strange fire before the Lord. They defiled worship and are killed by fire coming out uh, uh, of the tabernacle. And, and, um, and then it goes back into laws again, the details of how they're supposed to do the, the, uh, the sacrifices and the clean and unclean laws and all those sorts of things. So that's the most notable chunk of narrative is the consecration of the priests and the death of Nadab and Abihu. They are close to the middle of the book. Um, as far as, as where this book takes place, this entire book takes place while the children of Israel are camped at the foot of Mount Sinai, and Moses has already come down with the Ten Commandments. There's been the whole debacle with the, the golden calf, and the new Ten Commandments that, that God had to, to give to them. Um, there's been all the revelation concerning the tabernacle itself and how they were supposed to build it. The latter part of Exodus is a lot of details about how to build this tabernacle. Uh, it's going to be this big, and it's going to be made out of these things, and it's going to 
It'd be arranged this way. And here's the, here's the furniture that's going to go inside of the tabernacle. Um, so that's all been revealed. And at the very end, just back up one page, at the very end of Exodus, you have the tabernacle set up here in, in Exodus chapter 40. And uh, verse 34, a cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. So they built it, it's prepared for worship, and then the Shekinah glory of God descends on this tabernacle and, and fills it up. That, that pillar of cloud, that, that pillar of fire that had been leading them through the wilderness has now settled on this particular focal point in this tabernacle, and the glory of God is present in that tabernacle. This happens, it tells us, in verse number 16, so still Exodus 40, verse 16, uh, in the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month. So first day of the first month of the second year, the temple is prepared and the glory of God descends. Um, the Exodus, when they actually left Egypt, was the, the 14th day of the first month. With the Passover and everything that happened in Exodus, remember that with the 10th plague, that's sort of when God started the calendar that he's talking about here. This is why he'll say the second month, or the second year, I'm sorry, because he started counting at the Passover. There are 14 days of Passover, and then they left. Uh, uh, he... He describes in Exodus chapter 12 how to arrange the 14 days of Passover, and then they left Exodus. They left in the Exodus on the 14th day of what was now their first year, the first month of, of what's now their year, the way that God started this countdown. So we get to the end of Exodus, and we're now uh, on the first day of the first month of the second year. Uh, so one year has passed, minus 14 days since the Exodus. Is that all making sense? Sounded convoluted coming out of my mouth, but um, anyway, we're essentially a year now into their drama in the wilderness. Here's a side note, um, if we want to think of it from where we are. Uh, by our calendar, the Exodus took place in 1446 BC. Um, that's one of those dates that is debated in scholarly circles, the guys who dig around in Egypt and look at, at uh, rubble and form and all that stuff. The Egyptologists have debates about when the Exodus occurred. Well, there's debates among them about whether it occurred. We believe it occurred, right? And so for those who do believe that it occurred, there's debates about when it occurred and what dynasty and blah, blah, blah. It's debated, um, but we're Bible-believing people. And 1 Kings 6, 1 says that Solomon began to build the temple um, 480 years after the Exodus, and we have a lot more certainty about when Solomon began building the temple. We back it up 480 years because that's what the text says, and we ar arrive somewhere with the Exodus happening, happening in 1446 BC. So that's a good uh, uh, date to know. You can learn it if you want or write it in your Bible. The Exodus was 1446. So if we're a year in, we're give or take where? 1447, right? No, it's 1445, because you count backwards going to BC, right? Okay, so, so we're somewhere around 1445. Um, first day of the first month of the second year. Flip over to Numbers, right after Leviticus. 
you get to Numbers. <clears throat> Numbers 1, 1, the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they came out of Egypt. So Leviticus all happens in one month, okay? Exactly a month it takes place from when the glory of God descended on the tabernacle. God starts to reveal everything in this book, and the narrative story aspects that are recorded in Leviticus happen during that one month as they sit at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, So, to uh, start thinking about the content itself, from what you know and understand, what is Leviticus for? There's a lot of different ways to answer this question, so we could do a mind map if we wanted to. What? That's really good. This is the way they have to approach God. There you go. He's holy and can't abide sin, so here's all this provision made in these rituals. Yeah. Good. Those are two big things. Anything else you might think of? There you go. It's a, so it uh, is a shadow of something to come. So elements of it are going to reflect and picture something bigger and better than what it is in and of itself. Yeah. So you have bulls and goats dying in Leviticus. It's bloody, but that is an image of more special, actual cleansing blood, right, that would come in the person of Jesus Christ. So... Yes. Right, right. It was atonement. It covered their sin, uh, even though it couldn't actually take it away in and of itself. <clears throat> Good. All, all good things. We'll keep our minds thinking on that. I've got six reasons that I want to go over this morning, and um, I'm sure there could be more. Um, I'm not even going to... Comp- Did you have one? You were going to say, Mike? Uh-huh. Yeah. Hey, hey, Lord, what should we do with this thing? Uh-huh. There you go. So that's just very practical boots on the desert sand. What do we do with this tent now? Right? All right. Good. What's it for? Um, very good. Yeah. So Leviticus is a book of law. The old adage is, is that Leviticus is where your New Year's resolutions die. Because you decided to read the Bible through and you get to Leviticus and uh, you get bogged down in all of these laws. And then you never finish until you try again in Genesis next year. So Genesis and Exodus get well read. Right? But uh, Leviticus 
is a bunch of law, and to our sensibilities, it, it, can, uh, it can bog down. Um, I don't think it, it ought to. Obviously, we should keep on reading. Um, but it's a, it's a difficult book in that we don't look at it and go, oh, here's what we're supposed to do on Sunday. That's helpful to know, right? <laughs> we, we don't go to our backyard and pick out our favorite pigeons before we come over here and make sure it meets the qualifications um, in, in the book, right? So, so it's not the kind of book that we look to in the same way that they would have. Uh, and so it, 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 it's uh, more difficult for us to understand what we should do with all of it. But there's six reasons I want to talk about um, this morning. One of them, what's Leviticus 4? Um, firstly, it, it, it describes how God is going to dwell with his people, how he's going to dwell with his people. This is a huge theme all the way through scripture. It's repeated over and over and over and over and over and over and over. I will be their God, they will be my people, or I will dwell with my people, they will be with me. This presence of God with his people is this huge theme. I mean, it begins in Genesis with God walking with them in the garden, and part of the fall is that they're not with God anymore. They're kicked out of the garden. So this dynamic of God being with his people and his people being with him is this part of the storyline of Scripture as you have them in fellowship with God and not in fellowship with God, or you have them uh, people who are out of covenant with God among the Gentiles, and how do they get reconciled? This dynamic of how people can be with God and how God can be with them is all over. And in, that, in Leviticus, in the tabernacle structure, you have the presence of God made very concrete with his people. Because what you have is you literally have this, these circles of focus on the presence of God being right there in the middle of them. What you've got with the, the camp of the Hebrews in the wilderness is uh, God had them build this tabernacle in the center, and all around it, like you can see down there at the bottom right corner, is uh, it's kind of small, but the, the tribes were arranged by divine decree in order around the tabernacle. You had the 12 tribes situated there, and then you had the Levites, who were sort of that more central ring there, who were responsible to do all the, the taking care of the tabernacle and the, the priesthood and the sacrifices and hauling all the tabernacle gear through the wilderness. The Levites got to do that. So their various clans are camped around it. So you got, you got the people of Israel, and what's in the middle? The, the worship of the Lord and the focal point being, well, you've got this, this courtyard, and that courtyard is where you go to offer uh, your sacrifices to the Lord. And if you want to get even, um, uh, here's a scale image, by the way, just so you can see, like the whole thing wasn't that big. It's fairly small. You've got give or take two million people in the middle of the wilderness, and you've got this thing 50 yards long and you know, 15, 20 wide uh, in the center of it. So it's, it's very centralized, okay? It's not, not that big. And um, the, the courtyard there, you'd go in there to offer all of your sacrifices. And then inside that courtyard, what do you have? Well, you have the tabernacle itself, which is even smaller. And, and only the priest could go into that that first section where the table of showbread is and the menorah and all of that. And so only the priests would go there uh, to do certain rituals and certain things and to take care of the incense and the showbread. And then you've got this even more like 
exclusive part with the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And nobody goes in there because that's where the glory of God that we just read about in Exodus, the glory of God's in there. It's filling that most holy place or the Holy of Holies. And so the priest only goes in there once a year on the Day of Atonement with blood sacrifice. Um, And other than that, you stay out of the Holy of Holies because you can't approach it because the glory of God is there unless they do it exactly the way that God wanted them to. And then inside that Holy of Holies, you have this little piece of furniture, like smaller than that, probably. We're, we're really focused down, right? And there's the mercy seat on the top of it. And there, and there is where the, the Shekinah glory of God, the visible presence of God, is, is present right there at that specific spot in the middle of God's people. And the question arises, well, how can God do that? How can God live in the middle of his people? How can he dwell with them? Because we think about it and we, well, he was. He was there, which is incredible. The only thing that trumps it is is that he's actually presently indwelling within us. But even that feels so normal that when we think about this, I think even we go, whoa, he was actually there because it was like visible, but we have to believe that it's better to have him with us. But this is impressive that he would be in their midst, right? Um, But also, uh, backing out, you've got this this focal point where God is, and you've got the sacrifice, and you've got the people surround it. And then what do you have described all through Leviticus? If you're unclean, where do you go? Outside the camp, okay? So this is really tangible and physical that if there's some uncleanness, some impurity, um, some of these impurities happen because of sin. Some of them just happen in the course of life where you didn't even do anything wrong. Mom died and you had to carry her out and bury her. You didn't do anything wrong, but now you're unclean until you go outside the camp where unclean things are until you're, you're purified and then you can come back in again. So sometimes it was because of sin, sometimes it wasn't. It was just because of some sort of defilement that God said they needed to go outside the camp for cleansing. And so it's really visible. Like, if you're out there, you're not in the place where God is dwelling in the midst of his people. You got to be clean and examined by the priest before you can come back in again. And so in all of those spheres, all of those rings, God had to be the one who provided for you to live there. You had to be clean by his standards before you could live here. You had to be a Levite and be consecrated before you could be here and do these things in the the temple. You had to be only the high priest, only on a certain day, only with a certain blood before you could go into the Holy of Holies where the glory of God was. Like It all had to be on God's terms, or otherwise it it wasn't going to work. He had to be the one who provided for God to dwell in the midst of his people, and he did which is pretty incredible that he he did it. Right. It's all got to be on his terms. Uh, and it all has to be on based on revelation, too. How do we start Leviticus? God speaks out of the tabernacle. So he has to say, he has to reveal to his people how it's going to take place. They couldn't just sit around and come up with what would seem like good rituals on how they were going to approach God. They couldn't manufacture their own religion that seemed to, to be, you know, this will be good enough. Um, 
like every other religion does, which is man-made, they come up with their system that seems appropriate to them. But for approaching to, to God, that doesn't work. It all has to be on his terms, and he has to be the one who tells you how it's going to work. Otherwise, it ain't going to happen. And right in the middle of Leviticus, you have Nadab and Abihu doing it wrong, and they're, they're wiped out. Okay? They're, they're destroyed because of it. So all of this approaching to God has to be on his terms so that he can dwell with them. Go to Revelation chapter 21 real quick. Oops. Revelation 21, 1 through 3. I, this, here we are at the very end of the universe as we understand it. And a new heaven and a new earth is prepared. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The sea was no more. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear. That terminology of the dwelling place of God being with man, or, or uh, uh, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, that's all tabernacle language. That's all tent language, that God is going to be physically present with his people here on into the eternal state. And amazingly, this, um, this is the climax of history where finally we have this reality of God being with his people and, his, and uh, he's their God and they are his people. We have that fully consummated in the new heavens and the new earth. And we have it pictured way back 1446 BC with this tent in the wilderness with this special people who um, God was in their midst and he was dwelling among them. And it's, it's really pretty incredible. So all of this provision was so that God could dwell with his people. Um, here's another one, and this was mentioned by, by y'all as we were thinking about it. And that is one of the reasons for Leviticus is for God to be seen as holy. For God to be seen as holy. This is one of the, the first stepping stones for us to start to grab onto Leviticus is when we read it and we should go, whoa, God is really holy and all these, these laws that maybe we don't do can still impress on our hearts and minds. Wow, God is really holy. Here's all this tangible stuff that they did to demonstrate and show how holy God was. And we can learn and glean that uh, from Leviticus. Holy is used 470 times in the Old Testament. 92 of them are in Leviticus. Almost one out of five in the whole Old Testament references to holiness is in the book of Leviticus. And as you, if, if you were to do a quick search on, on holy in Leviticus and you were to start to scan through the list, one of the things that starts to become plain, and this is true all through the Bible, but it's really evident in Leviticus, is that holiness isn't just a reference to something being morally pure, but it's also a state of being set apart or consecrated to the Lord or being dedicated to him. So when you look through Leviticus, there are people who are holy, um, and you go, well, they're not actually holy because they're not completely pure and upright. You'd be right, but they're set apart for God's service or to, to worship him in some way, like the Levites, for example. 
Uh, there are things that are devoted to holy, objects. There are places that are holy. There are sacrifices that are holy. There are foods that are holy. And a lot of the worship rituals that are described uh, in the book of Levit Leviticus that have food and animals and things like that, a lot of the ritual involves something being transferred from a normal everyday thing into something that is a holy consecrated thing where this is for God now. It's set apart for him. This is to worship him. It's, it needs to be clean and pure and set apart because this is for the worship of Yahweh. So you bring your, your grain offering. You just scooped it out of the flour bowl this morning. Like this grain could have been made into pancakes, but now you've brought it to the Lord. It's normal, but now what? Now it's holy and it's set apart to worship the Lord. Or a person comes to serve God. and They're, they're a normal person, but they're now consecrated to the Lord to serve him. They're now made holy. And so one of the big distinctions in Leviticus is between the things that are holy and the things that are common. There's nothing wrong with being common. It's just a normal thing, but things can also be holy in that they're set apart uh, to the Lord. And the other distinction, is uh, the one we're more familiar with, is, is between the clean and the unclean. Some things are, are ceremonially clean and some of the things are not. So look at Leviticus chapter 10. We can see this distinction here. Leviticus chapter 10, verses 8 through 11. The Lord said to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. So there it needs to be by God's order. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are distinguished between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. So was there any, is he saying that there's anything essentially wrong for them to drink uh, wine here? He's not saying never, ever, 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 ever drink any wine. That's not what he's saying in this, in this passage. But he is saying, hey, Aaron, before you go worship the Lord, don't do it. Because you're supposed to distinguish between this is a normal everyday thing that I do. And this is a holy set-apart thing that I do to worship the Lord. And so we approach him on his terms and in his way. Uh, and so in that, God is seen as holy. One of the ways that God is seen as holy throughout the book is this declaration where he, he gives them a law and he says, do this. Well, why? And he says, because I am the Lord or I am Yahweh in our Bibles, the all caps Lord. So why should I obey this law? Because I am the Lord, and it's used all uh, 49 times throughout uh, Leviticus. Do this because I am the Lord. I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. And, and that motivation, for I am the Lord, is used all through the book for all sorts of different laws. Like, why not eat this certain kind of insect? Because I'm the Lord, and, I, and that's unclean. Uh, why should I not have sexual relations with a close relative? Because I am the Lord. Uh, why should we not offer our children to Molech? Because I am the Lord. And so it would go to those things that, that seem more trivial, whether or not you can eat this bug, all the way to don't offer your children to Molech. And, and all of those things are you're doing it because, to the Lord because he's Yahweh, because he's holy, because he has to be approached on his terms. It all has to be uh, just right because God is holy. Holy and the holiness of God drives all these commandments. If you're still in chapter 10, just look over to chapter 11. 
Leviticus 11, verse 44. And here is a context talking about which bugs they could eat. Uh, let's start at verse 43. You shall not make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourself with them and become unclean through them. For wh- Why? For I am the Lord. I'm Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. So that consecration and holiness is being set apart to the Lord. For I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, to be your God, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. It's this huge theme all throughout the book that God is holy, and that drives why these laws are necessary for the children of Israel. A third reason, and that is, and it's related to the holiness of God, but all this law exposes sin. So our third reason for why all this law is because Sin is exposed. Uh, And this is still true. Um, Romans 3 tells us that by the works of the law, no no human being can be justified in God's sight. So none of us are going to be right with God by going backwards and doing these laws. But it says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Or Paul puts it in Galatians, that the law was our schoolmaster to, to keep people until Christ came. So the law has this instructive, uh, really condemning nature to it, where it holds up this standard and you fall short of the standard and realize your dependence on God. So the fact that we cannot keep God's law reveals that we need Christ on our behalf. And so this is a New Testament teaching. You know, I just pulled it from Romans, Romans chapter 3. But this would be the natural result of operating under this system, that you don't make it. Like, here's all these standards. I don't do it all the time. And when I don't, I have to go bring the sacrifices to, to atone for my sin. The law was not as though, here it is, guys. And, and uh, if you do it, then you get two thumbs up and a gold star and eternal life. Like, it didn't operate that way because nobody could and nobody did. And so they're constantly reminded of their sin and the need to be purified and the, the need to be made clean by something external to themselves. And there were these constant reminders of, of sin. The author of Hebrews reminds us of that, that. Just the fact the sacrifices had to happen more than once means that sin was constantly a problem. You couldn't just go atone for sin and then, cool, good to go. Like it didn't work that way. Over and over, the sacrifices had to be made because sin was constant and um, the blood and bulls of goats couldn't actually take it away. Um, so one of our responses to the law, and I think I've often had this response to reading Leviticus. I read it and I go, whew, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore and sort of move on. (laughs) And and that's true and actually really great, but is a somewhat superficial response to it. Um, because the reality is, is we would be required to do it if we were to stand on our own feet. And, and we would have to attain perfect adherence to it if Christ hadn't fulfilled it for us. And we're, n- we're not saved because God decided, ah, Leviticus doesn't count anymore. Y'all can get to heaven without Leviticus. We're not saved because of that. We're saved because Jesus did it. 
Like God's going, someone's got to fulfill this law. Can't do it. Okay, Jesus does it. And then he credits his righteousness to you so that you are considered to have met God's righteous standard, not by your works, but by Jesus taking your place. So the, the, so the law stands in that it, it has to, God doesn't just dismiss it, he fulfills it. And there's a big difference between that. He doesn't go, now oh, let's chuck Leviticus. He goes, no, let's satisfy all the requirements of it. Boom, Jesus did Leviticus. You're seen as righteous in God's eyes by faith. And so our sin is exposed, but then Jesus is the one who, who meets the standard for us. Number four. <clears throat> Fourth reason is for the people to have access to God despite the reality of sin. So how can a holy God live in the middle of an unholy people? If God's going to dwell there and there's sinful people out there, how's that going to work? How's that going to work? How can a holy God live in the midst of an unholy people? Or to put it the other way, how can an unholy people live in the presence of a holy God? How, how is this going to work? And the laws are what made this possible for the Hebrews. They didn't justify people. They didn't actually give them eternal life. Um, that was always by faith. But these instructions, these rules were how God's covenant people could live in relationship to God and have a pillar of fire in the middle of the camp and not be annihilated. God could be present with them. You have this uh, Mount Sinai and the tabernacle are very similar. What happened with Mount Sinai? It was completely unapproachable. There's thunder and lightning. The people feared to go near it. There's the glory cloud on top. God is speaking from the top of the mountain and they put up a fence because even if a critter touched the mountain, it's going to die. So don't go near the mountain. So you have God's holiness on, on display there. Don't go near the mountain. Um, but they also couldn't approach God. He's up there on the mountain. And only Moses could, could go up there. And there's a lot of comparison between that and the tabernacle, because the Holy of Holies was, was again, unapproachable. It's full of the glory of the Lord. The glory cloud is there. God's speaking out of the tabernacle in a similar way. And only the priests and the high, and the high priests can approach. But through the ritual and the, the provision that God made in the book of Leviticus, God's people could dwell as a people with God in their presence, and they could have a way to approach him in an appropriate way. And I, I got this quote from a guy named Morales. I thought it was really helpful. He said, it can be or, there can be neither safe nor life-giving access to God apart from special revelation. And both those things are necessary because um, it's not safe to approach God. Don't go near the mountain. Don't walk into the Holy of Holies. Uh, there's no way to do it unless God tells you how to approach. Uh, you could say, okay, if it's not safe, I don't need to go near God. I'll just stay way over here. But what do we need? <laughs> we need God. Like, we need his, uh, his presence. We need to be with him. Or we're alienated from God. That, that's the obvious alternative. So it's not safe to go there, but we need it. So how are you going to fix that? Well, for the, the Hebrew people, God gave them this access to God by 
giving them these, these steps by which they could have these particular rituals and these particular sacrifices and these particular holidays and things like that and, and rightly worship God as he required them to worship. So, so uh, it allowed Israel to dwell as a nation with the very presence of God in their midst. Um, number five, the law provided for atonement to be provided or covering for sin. This is used 52 times in the book of, of Leviticus, and a blood was necessary to cover sins. This is the, the book where we get the phrase that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and we have this emphasis on the importance of blood. Blood shows up 87 times. There's blood all through the book of Leviticus. And just, just think about that. Imagine if you were actually living out Leviticus, if you were one of these people, and you walk into the courtyard, and what is there? There's animals everywhere. There's entire clans of Levites whose job it is is to offer all these sacrifices for this huge nation of people, two million plus or minus people, who all have to have these sacrifices. So there's just this, this slaughter going on in the courtyard of the tabernacle. There's these burnt offerings, and for burnt offerings, if, if you brought your bull to, to be a bull, burnt offering, guess who cuts its throat? You, right? So you're the one killing this animal and, and slaughtering it for sacrifice, and it's being burned up or offered in various ways. The, the Levites would get their food from it and stuff like that too. There's all these steps, but there's these sacrifices taking place. It would, it would, it would not be a pretty place to walk into that courtyard. It would stink it would reek of blood and smoke and death, and there's blood everywhere. There's blood being thrown on the altar. There's blood being drained out in certain places according to the rules. There's blood being sprinkled on things, and there's blood being dipped and daubed, and there's, there's blood all over the place. The priests are putting it on their ears and on their thumbs and on their big toes, and the high priest is carrying it around in little basins to, to daub it on horns of the altars, and there's, there's just death everywhere. Why? Because you're a sinner, like this is what is required so that there can be some atonement for your sin until Jesus comes. This atonement has to be provided. One of the things that's been pointed out about Leviticus is building on the fact that it's in the middle of the Pentateuch. And so some have proposed that since it's in the middle of the Pentateuch, since it's the third of the five books, that it's there on purpose because it's sort of the heart of it. Like it's sort of the most important focal point is how people can approach God. And so it's right there in the middle of it. And interestingly as well is that in the middle of, of uh, Leviticus, which is already in the middle, that the very middle of the book of Leviticus is atonement. The day of atonement's there in chapter 16. And that's a, a, a characteristic of a lot of biblical literature is that biblical outlines are often like cones with the most important thing out here at the point of the cone. It's called a, a chiasm or a chiasm. Usually we outline from top to bottom or from front to back, and we might think in terms of like, let's put something that'll really grab your attention at the front, and let's put my strongest point at the end. So we'll, we think along those sort of linear lines, but uh, biblical literature is often where you have a flow of thought with the most important thing out here, and then you have the flow of thought coming back again, and there's parallels between the, the sides of the cones as they come together. And this is true in Leviticus, because in chapter 1, uh, one through 7, you have uh, the sacrifices described. On 8 through 10, you have the priesthood. 
Uh, and, and then uh, 11 through 15, you have descriptions of what's clean and what's unclean. And then in chapter 16, you have the Day of Atonement. So right there in the center of Leviticus, and really at the center of the Pentateuch, you have atonement. Like you're supposed to notice this. It's a big deal. And then the themes of Leviticus go back out again in that 11 through, uh, or 17 through 20 describe things that are holy or profane. And then 21 through 22 describes the priesthood again. And then um, 23 through 27 are festivals or holidays that would correspond to certain parts of their year. And so you have these parallels where sacrifices and festivals uh, correspond to one another, where the priesthood and priesthood corresponds to one another, where the clean and the unclean corresponds with one another. And right in the middle again, you have what? The Day of Atonement. Because again, this is the heart of it. How can you have your sins covered? How can they be um, covered so that you, again, can live in the midst of a holy God? And the Day of Atonement, which we'll get to, obviously, in the course of our study uh, some weeks from now, was the, the central part that describes how sin could be covered by blood until Jesus came. Uh, number six, sixth reason for Leviticus. And that was is that Israel was to remember who they were. Remember who they were. Go to Leviticus chapter 25. <clears throat> Verse 55. This is uh, regarding rules about how to handle uh, certain kinds of slaves who owe debts and how they could get their freedom, their redemption. Um, he was to be treated with certain kindness. Verse 53 says that um, you weren't supposed to rule over him ruthlessly. Verse 54, if he's not redeemed by those by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. So that's the year that servants and slaves would, would have uh, freedom given to them. Verse 55. Well, why should we have these laws about slaves? Verse 55. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So some, some of the laws on top of having just the broad motivation of do it because I'm the Lord and I'm holy, some of them would have more specific sort of application type of motivations. Why should we treat our slaves properly? And Yahweh says, you need to treat your slaves properly because y'all were once slaves. You were slaves in Egypt and you now belong to me. And so some of the rituals, and this is just one example, some of the rituals would be reminders of who Israel was and why they were, what they were, and reminding them that they belonged to God. Um, so that's just uh, a, a brief reason for why we have Leviticus, is so that they could remember who they were. Uh, number seven, this is the final one, is, is that all of this law distinguished God's people from the nations. Go to Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. We'll finish up here. 
Leviticus 18, verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, where you lived. And you shall not do, I'm sorry, land of Egypt, where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. So don't be like Egypt, where you just came from. Don't be like Canaan, where you're headed. Um, you shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So that's an, another one of the reasons is, is that it sort of takes that theme of holiness or consecration to the Lord um, and, and the fact that they were a covenant people and it made it really, really tangible that you guys are supposed to be different than everybody else because I've chosen you out to be my people and you belong to me and I dwell in your midst. And so you need to do these things because um, uh, because you're special, you're different, you're set apart from the rest of the nations. And that set-apartness isn't like It, 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 it isn't self-motivated or self-righteous. Like, I'm going to live over here because I'm going to be my own special little, um, little group because I look down my nose at everyone else. The Jews ended up twisting it into that, <laughs> as we know. But it was because they were supposed to go, God chose us and we belong to him. And so that separateness wasn't supposed to be because of themselves, um, and their, their own sense of, you know, hyper-fundamentalism or something like that. Uh, or they, so they had a special compound. Like, it wasn't focused on themselves. It was um, that God had put them there. That they weren't supposed to act like the other nations because they were God's people. That they weren't supposed to look like Egypt because they weren't Egypt. The, the Egyptians didn't know God. They did know God. Uh, the, the, the nations in Canaan, they're pagans, and they... They don't acknowledge the true king of the universe, but, but we do. And the only reason we do is because God's revealed himself. Not because we have climbed up to God, but because he has come down to us. Not because we've done all the right things to please God, but because he's told us what we ought to do so that we can walk with him rightly and, and he can dwell in the midst of, of, of his people. And so it distinguished God's people from uh, the nations. So again, there's a lot for us to, to glean just in overviewing Leviticus, and there's a lot for us to glean without falling into legalism and thinking we have to do it, um, without applying all of these laws to us, um, instead recognizing that Christ has fulfilled it and we're not under the legal obligation like they were, and we don't want to fall into that error, but there's still plenty for us to learn concerning God's holiness and how uh, it was only his way that they could be with him and that God's great purposes are to dwell in the midst of his people. And we still are excited about that reality. Like We're glad he's with us now. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth where he's with us in a, in a different way. So all, all those things are, are things that should tug at our hearts as we see it sort of uh, made concrete and tangible in this real thing that happened in the desert thousands of years ago where God was physically, gloriously, visibly present with his people and that he desires the, the, the same with us. We just approach through, through Jesus. So let's close with that.
and then we'll, uh, we'll be done. God, we do thank you for this book. Um, if we find it dry, Lord, that, that may be uh, natural to some degree, and so we ask that you would um, change our taste buds a little bit. We know that, that our, our spiritual taste buds are marred by sin, and we uh, often like those things that uh, you hate, and we often don't like those things that, that you love, and so we need your transforming grace in our lives to make us more like you. And if a part of that is for any of us, and I speak for myself too, if a part of that is for any of us that we feel a certain dryness toward parts of your word, then help us in that. Lord, cause us to love and delight uh, in, in your word and what you've revealed to us. And you've said that the things that were written before were written for our learning so that we might have hope. And uh, Lord, you gave Leviticus to the, to the people in the wilderness for a lot of the reasons we've talked about today. But it's also supposed to feed us. Um, in some way, in some fashion, you're supposed to, to feed us uh, meaty things from your word out of this book. So we pray that you would do that, whether it be as we do it together on Sunday or as we have opportunity to read and meditate ourselves. Show us uh, wonderful things through your word. Thank you that you are holy. Thanks that you didn't have to diminish that holiness to approach to, uh, to us. Thank you that you didn't water down your, your righteous character. Uh, thank you also that you haven't destroyed us, but that you've made a way and even as they had that pillar of cloud and a way to, to worship you, thank you that we have ways to worship you um, and that you've uh, made us your own beloved children and we have free access through Jesus. Um, Lord, we have corporate worship today, and even that is something you provided, so we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.